millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Bard College Dance Program, located 90 miles north of New York City in the Hudson Valley and housed in the Frank Gehry Design Fisher Center, sees the pursuit of artistry and intellect as a single endeavor and the study of the body as a cognitive act, demanding both physical practice and exploration of the broader academic context in which the art form exists. Through intensive technique and composition courses, on-stage performance and production experience, dance students are prepared to understand and practice the art of choreography and performance. Since 2009, the Bard Dance Program has hosted an in-residency dance company or performing arts organization bringing professional technique and composition to the academic program in the form of teaching, educational licensing projects, master classes, full company production residencies, and public performances. Past partnerships have included Bill T. Jones Dance Company, Trisha Brown Dance Company, American Dance Festival, and Gibney Dance. For more information, please contact Program Director Tara Lorenzen, tlorenzen at bard.edu. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Hi, everyone. We have a very special episode for you today. So I wanted to pop on for a second and give it a introduction. So a few weeks ago, we got an email from Michael Small. He's a former People Magazine reporter, and he was telling us about his podcast called I Couldn't Throw It Out. The theme of his podcast is that he has preserved notes and recordings of interviews with celebrities and people of note, and then he shares them on his podcast. Um, And he was telling us about his most recent episode where he shares an interview with Martha Graham. Um, So naturally, we had to investigate and um, find out more. So we invited um, Michael on the podcast and he generously agreed to allow us to share the recording of his interview with Martha from 1989. So at the beginning of the podcast, we're going to chat with him, get a little background on him and this interview. He really sets the scene for us nicely. He shares with us some of his notes that he has written down and then we all listen to it and um, react to it. So that comes later on in this episode. At the beginning of the episode, he also refers to some of his chats that he'd had with Janet Elber, who's artistic director of Martha Graham Dance Company. Um, and of course, we've had her on the podcast multiple times. And so he interviewed her as a part of his podcast episode on Martha Graham. So we hope that you guys will um, check out his podcast. I couldn't throw it out. It's really wonderful. Uh, you can listen to it wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Um, okay, enjoy. Good morning, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to talk to you about your podcast. I couldn't throw it out, and in particular, an episode um, that concerns Martha Graham. But we'd love to get a little bit of knowledge about your own background um, as a writer. So first, maybe could you tell us um, how you got into writing and then in what ways that has intersected with dance? 
Sure, I'd be glad to do that. But first, I have a question for you. Is this really episode 368? <laughs> Probably. Is, actually, right? actually, it's yeah. more than that because we have some bonus episodes that we used to do where we didn't um, do it. So yeah, there's a lot of hours on the internet of us talking. <laughs> I am so <laughs> impressed. I, I think I'm going to fall off my chair. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much. I'm so proud to be a part of this. I, I really, really appreciate it. And, and it's really fun to be here to talk with both of you. Um, to tell you a little bit about my career, I um, got out of college and didn't know what to do. And I was in book publishing for a year and then switched over to People Magazine. I got a job there because someone had sent my clips to them and somehow they heard about me and they had told me that I could come and apply for a job as a fact checker. Mm. And I got there and I realized that the head of fact checking, her arm had really been twisted to get me to come in for an interview. Um, and she really didn't want to hire anybody at that time. But I also noticed that her plants were in great need of help. She had a lot of hanging plants in her window. <laughs> and I was really into gardening. So I asked her if she had a pair of scissors. And I gave all her plants uh, a haircut during this interview. And then she said, can you start Monday? Can you come and do that to my plants? They need a little bit of TLC. I'm getting a little rusty. But then I stayed there for 16 years. And it really was a dream job and a wonderful experience for me because I loved school and did not want to leave school. And being a reporter is a lot like being in school because you can, well, you guys know, you can just go and learn about all these things you didn't know. and. Mm -hmm. The podcast that I'm doing now sort of reflects the fact that I could go in many different directions and learn about many different things and and learn from the people who knew the most. Mm -hmm. And one of those things I learned about was dance. I, mm -hmm. I had absolutely no knowledge of dance when I went into the job, but I was very much interested in the arts. So I was the deputy arts editor for many years. And that meant that I was usually proposing and assigning and often writing the stories that were about the arts. So uh, I had a very broad range and they gave me free reign. You know, you may think of People Magazine as all about reality TV stars now, but right. back then they let me do what I wanted to do. And it was such an encouraging environment, uh, partly because it was. Uh, the most popular magazine in America at the time, and there was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. could afford not to pay me so much, but to let me go have the cost of saying, I'm going to go interview Martha Graham, and they could invest in that experience. Um, and right. um, so while I I was doing that, I I actually lived near Brooklyn Academy of Music, and there was a lot of experimental work going on there. So I proposed a story on Pina Bausch, which we did, mm -hmm. um, Martha Clark, which we did, Bill T. Jones. I um, uh, really enjoyed those. And I went back and looked at my stories, and the Martha Clark and Pina Bausch stories were very much about audiences don't understand what they're seeing. And mm -hmm. this job as a reporter, which I know you guys are going to relate to, of trying to find the words that will help pe give people a way in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
right. know, and, but then I also did a story about breakdancing. Um, mm -hmm. and so the range cool. was, was always there and always the challenge, you know, breakdancing was also hard for people to understand. We don't think that now, mm -hmm. but back then sure, yeah. trying to give people the way into that. And that was pretty much my specialty at people was covering the more obscure things though. Mm -hmm. I did do my Michael Jackson cover and my, uh, princess diana cover story but <laughs> but uh i was more i was more interested in this sort of thing right what was the reception like from readers was it something that they were really looking forward to reading about or did you really kind of have to push it like we should really be talking about these sorts of things i didn't often get as many letters as we got when we wrote about Michael Jackson. Right, yeah. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> uh, but there were wonderful editors there. It was it was an exciting environment. I remember when I first got there, I was still a little bit involved with the generation gap. Like my parents were in my mind wonderful people who were old and out of it. <laughs> And I met people their age. My editor was their age, and he knew Joni Mitchell's songs, you know, mm -hmm. and and he knew not just who Martha Graham was, because obviously he would know Martha Graham, but he also was really open when I came in to talk about Pina Bausch, you know, mm -hmm. and and so I think it's more about my editor's reaction, which is that they liked that I was adding this this uh little twist to the magazine and they felt a little bit that younger people would be interested in the stories that I was a lot of the stories I was doing mm -hmm. and the music I was reviewing back then but I think it's a really interesting thing to me because I have the same issue with my podcast when you get advice about doing podcasts they tell you to do what you guys are doing which is that you have a topic that people want to come back for every week. People who come to my podcast, it's Martha Graham was my last one. My next one is on Tupac Shakur, and I interviewed him. And and the range is a little challenging in a certain way, but in another way, it's exactly what I love because <laughs> yeah. each week I have to try to help people in. That's what I did at People also, to help people in to things that they might not discover otherwise. And for me, I would say really one of the best hours of my year so far was listening to Janet Elbert talk about Martha Graham mm. because she is such an articulate, thoughtful person mm -hmm. who helped me understand this person I interviewed, what is it, 30 something years ago in a way that I never understood it when I was meeting the person. And right. I found that so exciting. And I, I wanted to share that with people as much as the Martha Graham interview. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Janet is just such a wonderful advocate for Martha and her work. I mean, you, you can't ask for anything better someone who's like an award-winning actress <laughs> you know and just gorgeous to boot and yeah i mean we, we love janet we're big janet fans in this house <laughs> yeah. so um 
let, let's talk about your podcast for a second. So how did you come up with uh, the concept and what were the kind of like seeds of um, the, the creative process for this? I started saving things when I was six years old. And I swear to you, I am not a hoarder. <laughs> I carefully curate what I save. And I don't think I'm the only one who does this. I've spoken to so many people right. who save things very carefully. Um, and I didn't know why I was saving these things, but I really had trouble letting go of them. And mm -hmm. when I was at People, I saved every cassette of every interview that I did. Um, other people just taped over them. And mm -hmm. I felt that they were precious to me. Now, I did find an interesting case, which is that my Martha Graham interview, I don't, I must have been, sometimes I was really stuck and I needed to tape quickly and I would tape over. So I mm -hmm. did, I think I partly taped over. Um, the kids of survival. Remember, remember they there was an art project in the Bronx with uh where they um uh, an artist worked with kids in the Bronx and and I taped over part of the kids of survival, which is interesting because Martha Graham was kind of a survivor. <laughs> so uh, I replaced one some survivors with another one, but that was really an accident. I I mm -hmm. I've got these boxes full of cassette tapes. But I also have every letter everyone ever wrote to me. And you could say that's hoarding, but those are precious. People took time to write me a letter. And, right. and recently, I was trying to figure out, well, how am I ever going to put these on the podcast? So I actually, you, you, this may question my sanity, and you may want to just throw me off right now. But I actually went through every letter I've ever received and organized them by sender. So I have a folder for each sender and I can go, you know, uh, what did Jim Coe send me? And I've got, here's everything Jim Coe sent me in my wow. entire life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so anyway, I had this stuff and I feel like it is valuable. It is history. When you, I, I, I love history and I've studied history and my favorite part is the part about normal everyday people, not kings and conquerors. And mm -hmm. and when you read these wonderful history books, it's about the, the things people saved that gives us what a time was like and a feeling for what a time was like better than ever. And I, my wife and I don't have any children. I'm now 66. And I had saved these things. Eventually, they were in um, cardboard boxes. Or, and then those fell apart. So now they're in plastic bins that I actually put an investment in <laughs> to buy <laughs> 24 bins. And they're a little bit arranged by topic and time period. And I realized that someone will just come in and throw them in the dumpster. That's that's what will happen. We, When my parents left, they gave no thought at all about what they would do with their stuff. And my sister Debbie and I had a painful week of just going through all this stuff and some of it is in my boxes now where we would we would sort the things but it helped me see their lives in a whole different way when i went through their stuff mm -hmm. so um that's why i'm hoping that it's not just about me that it will inspire other people to go through the things they saved look at them again 
tell the stories about them, think what you're going to do with it. And that is really the goal of the podcast. This Martha Graham interview, I had forgotten that I interviewed her. I did not remember that I interviewed her. And and when I pulled it out, you know, I I always want to talk about Proust, but it seems pretentious. <laughs> but <laughs> but but um I I am my friend Jamie, my close friend gave me the complete Proust in French that I'm slowly working through. And I do think that that had a huge effect on me that he bit into that Madeleine cookie and remembered this whole world that feels like whatever it is, 5,000 pages of memories that come out mm -hmm. of it. And when I, when I took out that Martha Graham tape, I saw that green room or whatever in that, in the studio near the 59th street bridge. And she's sitting there with her hair pulled back in a bow and she's very frail and small and very kind of elegant. And it's just like, like I went back in time and, right. and that experience would have been lost. It would have been in a dumpster. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that mm -hmm. I got to share it. Yeah. Yeah. So glad. Yeah. I, well, I just want to say firstly that, you know, Proust isn't pretentious anymore. There was a Proust joke in the Barbie movie. So it's gone. It's <laughs> fully right. mainstream. That's right. I forgot. <laughs> It's by the way, uh, I want to say since since you're allowing me to talk about Proust, they always make you read Combray the first part, which is it's amazing and it has all this great stuff in it, but it's it's boring for kids. If you skip to the next book, it's incredibly sexy. Read the next book. Read the next part. Swan <laughs> in love. Pro tip. Pro tip. <laughs> Well, we're so glad that you found this interview and that you got in touch with us to share it with us because we thought it was just so cool and something that our listeners would really enjoy and would enjoy hearing from you. So one thing that you do um, on the podcast is really introduce um, the interview and where you were, what you were covering. So tell us a little bit about how the interview came about and then what research you were kind of doing and how you were a part of her world before and after you conducted this interview. Part of what was so exciting about my job is that people came to me. Once they knew what my beat was, people came to me with all kinds of wonderful ideas. I got, I was very excited about it. And in fact, to the point where it's a little, I have to say, obnoxious, because I would go into the story meetings and I would have so many ideas that I could tell people were like, just like, will you shut up? Just go do, <laughs> go do a story and get out of here. <laughs> but I was approached um, about uh, this event, this major event, which is that Barishnikov was redoing American Document with Martha Graham. She was 95 years old. And what I didn't know when it was pitched to me is that they were in financial trouble. And Barishnikov was doing this to make a big event where they could raise a lot of money. And those are two big names working. <laughs> those are two big yeah. names working together. And so I pitched the story. And one of the things, of course, you know, I save everything. I have my story pitch. I have it right here. I couldn't bring myself to throw it out. And one of the things that I enjoyed mm. was that I made a few little jokes in my pitch. I said uh, uh, something like, old age, not necessarily mine, 
means that we better jump on the story right away. <laughs> <laughs> and and You're right. Uh, yeah. And also the fact that she was writing her memoir with uh her editor was Jackie Onassis. Um and a little side note, I have the book right here. I just ordered it. I hadn't read it at the time. You know, when you're doing this kind of journalism, you're onto one story, then onto the next. And yeah, one of the treasures for me of going back is that in each story I've revisited, I found something, a movie somebody made a mention of, um, somebody, somebody made a mention of a poet that I went and read all the poetry of. And, mm. um, and in this case, I went and got this book. Have, have either of you read Blood Memory, her, her autobiography? I have not. Yeah. A shame on us. No, no. <laughs> We're going to get I mean, it now. <laughs> um, it is like reading poetry. Mm. And this, this, is, this is what I mean when I say go back to your things. Because would I ever have ordered this book? Would I ever have read it? No. Right. Um, she was dictating this book into a microphone and then working on it with Jackie Onassis. And this book just tells me that my instinct was right, that her brain was working beautifully at the time the the references mm -hmm. in here no one else could have edited that in you know right. her, her literary references and the poetry of it um so she really was mentally astute at the age of 95 wow. um and um so i also yeah so i pitched it and told them it was a rush and they said okay get over there <laughs> And mm -hmm. they only uh, they only allowed three interviews because her stamina wasn't that great. So it was the New York Post. What was the other one? The New York Times, I think, and me. Mm -hmm. Wow! Wow! Yeah, this is because you're already kind of touching on something I what I was curious about, like what your pre-interview process was, and I think it makes total sense. Of course, you don't have enough time to do the whole deep dive that you might like to do. And this, I think this happens to us all the time. You know, we interview people about their new books and we try our best to, you know, get it all in before we talk to them. But oftentimes you have to just come at it from a place of curiosity and see where the conversation leads you without actually having, you know, firsthand like depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and also this was ancient times. You, you, you two <laughs> will not remember these times. I'm not even have a clue of what it was like. How did we get information then? There was no internet. Wait, you and couldn't so, just Google someone you were about to interview like we do. So, right. So here's a crazy, here's a crazy thing you may not know about that I talk about often on the podcast, which is Time Incorporated had a clip library. They had a floor where there were people who just read newspapers cut out everything in them and then put them and then put them into these racks that were alphabetical so you put all your clips under a under b under c under d and then somebody else came along and took all the a's and put them into the folders and so for for martha graham there was a g and they put all the martha graham clips under g and there were these bulging folders of clips and you would call you would call the library and say i need martha graham I need Ronald Reagan, whatever, whoever was current yeah. at the time. Wow. And they would send the clip folder up to you. But that was all you had. Right. right. Or or what the pub, another role thing that we may not remember is that publicists then needed to send you information. Mm -hmm. But right. you were getting what the publicists wanted you to see. 
Sure, yeah. Mm, that's true. Try Audible Plus free for 30 days. Audible Plus is a brand new all-you-can-listen membership that offers access to thousands of titles, including a vast variety of audiobooks, podcasts, and originals that span genres, lengths, and formats. Access Audible originals, including documentaries, theater, and sleep programs, all made to be heard. Plus, audiobooks, including fan favorites and most loved genres like mystery and thrillers and motivation. Audible Plus also allows you to tune into podcasts like Conversations on Dance, an exclusive series ad-free. Get Audible Plus now, free for 30 days and just $7.95 a month after that. Or give the gift of Audible this holiday season. To learn more, visit amazon.com slash shop slash conversations on dance or click the link in the show notes. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, can we talk about a few of your notes that you took? Because you did watch rehearsal before doing this interview. So give us some of those notes to introduce us, and then we'll go ahead and play the interview. Sure. Um, so while I was with her, th there were I had two separate events. The first event is that I interviewed her, and then I went to a rehearsal. Um, uh, while I was with her, I had no idea that this tape would be shared with anyone <laughs> ever um so i didn't mind people were walking in and out and making noise and that's why unfortunately there there were moments that are just lost because um there was too much noise or her voice was too low and you can't tell what she's saying um but she sat there and ron protas was with us um and he had spoken to me for about an hour really a long time before I spoke with her, I wondered if it was because she was late um, <laughs> and he was trying to keep me <laughs> busy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he, he gave me a lot of very useful background about the company. Um, and uh, then we had our interview and then I'm pretty sure we went right from that into the rehearsal. Um, and the rehearsal, uh, 
Barishnikov was there. He didn't say very much. He was stretching on the floor, but it was quite a scene to walk in. There are the female dancers. They're all wearing these long, long gowns that they wore during that performance. And then Cecilia Peck, who's Gregory Peck's daughter, was reading the narration. Um, they had updated the narration a lot. For people who may not know American Document, um, she originally did this piece, I think, in 1938. It was a response to fascism in Europe. She was trying to show that America was different, and she was quoting all sources about freedom, I think. You know, it was like Declaration of Independence, Abraham Lincoln. Um, she also uh, used Native American sources in it because that was you know, she she was thinking ahead of her time that <laughs> that there were a lot of voices in America that she was acknowledging that other people were not acknowledging. Um, but then for this update, she added Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy and other people who came later. So so Cecilia would was reading a little bit, and then dancers were doing something. And um I think Barishnikov was really working hard on this. Like he was coming, they said he was coming six days a week. Wow. Um, and she was there probably about three hours a day with them. Um, I know that it's, that Ron told me a story that it was 7 p.m. and he was like, you've got to go home, Martha. And she was like, what's for me at home? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I want to be. Wow. And and celebrities would come in and out of these um, events. So, so Bianca Jagger. I don't know if you know back. She was a major celebrity back then. She was Mick Jagger's mm -hmm. uh, former wife. A very, very beautiful. I think she had been a model, maybe. But anyway, she's really smart, intelligent woman who was involved with a lot of important causes, and she was a big supporter of the uh, Martha Graham Company. And then Francesco Clemente. The artist was there, and he uh, is an extremely important visual artist. One little side note that is funny about that is that I mentioned this in my podcast. I interviewed Jean-Michel Basquiat um, oh, wow. uh, on the phone. That was something that I had was I crossed paths with Andy Warhol a lot because of what I was doing, and he recommended I talk to Jean-Michel. Um, and Jean-Michel made a reference to Francesco Clemente. And I was like, and he said, do you know who that is? And I said, no. <laughs> and he was <laughs> disgusted with me. <laughs> Absolutely disgusted with me. And there, Francesco Clemente kept crossing my path because there he was. Um, and Martha was unhappy with what she was seeing. They were about to go, eight days later, they were going to put on this gala performance where people were paying $1,000 a ticket or $500 for some people. And um, uh, she, she, I, I, it was, it's hard to understand how she could be unhappy with what she was seeing for me. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, she, one of the things she said was, and I, I, this is something I wrote down for you, but she said, I've watched you and you did all the moves and it was absolutely meaningless. <laughs> Maybe it would mean something to somebody else, but it meant nothing to me. We've got a lot of work to do. Wow. 
so brutal. <laughs> and 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 Janet told me that the worst insult from her was when it for it to be meaningless. Mm-hmm. And even from her looking at her autobiography, she said that that you know it's got to have meaning. It's got to have. It's not just people moving around, you know, <laughs> in beautiful ways. That there mm-hmm. has to be something going on there that that has a powerful feeling to it. Um, mm-hmm. right. And so when when I mean, I thought the rehearsal looked good. I thought the performance looked good. So. <laughs> I'm not as as uh, tuned into that as she was. Um, but uh, the other thing that I want to say is that it was only when I was getting ready to talk to you that I went back and listened again. And I realized that she was 95. So there were times when she was talking to me that her, she would lose the thread of what she was saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm 66. I do that all the time. So. <laughs> um but and she was slurring her speech a little um and um you know it it is sometimes hard to hear what she's saying but i also think there was real poetry in what she spoke to me and i really appreciated that um the only other thing i want to just mention to you is that the the part there was then there was the gala performance then there was the party afterwards um and i i ended up becoming a a party reporter a lot like i <laughs> i went to celebrity parties a lot not not always doing a very good job of it but i went <laughs> and at this party uh just to drop some names cuz we got to drop the names mm-hmm. um <laughs> frank and barbara sinatra were there uh Garson Kanan, remember the this screenwriter, Cheryl Teagues, the model who I cross paths with many times. Uh, uh, if you are interested in Cheryl Teagues, I have an excellent story about her in my <laughs> on my podcast about Bill Murray. Um, Kathleen Turner was there. Suzanne Vega, the singer. Donna Karen, the designer. Calvin Klein, I talked to him. Uh, Ralph Lauren, and. A couple of controversial figures, uh, Ivana Trump and her husband. Wow, <laughs> that's really and I that's mean an quite a roster. List. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was in the grand ballroom of the Plaza Hotel. There were about five hundred and fifty people, and yeah, those those events felt rarefied, you know. And I went to. To be honest, I went to a lot of those events, and it's very strange because I was living on a very tiny budget, and I was putting on my tuxedo that I actually bought for $10 in college, and and with my little crooked bow tie, and and going in with that crowd to oh. celebrate Martha Graham. <laughs> wow. All right. So we're going to play the interview now. And I wanted to also introduce that um, in this recording, you and your co-host on your podcast kind of come in and read some of the transcript for us. You do a really great job of making sure that we hear even in some moments where it's a little bit grainy. Um, And we will have the transcript too that you provided us with. We're going to put that on our website as well. So we're going to go ahead and hit play much as I can, I'd rather have you talking instead of me talking. That way you don't have to worry as much about me just, you know, saying what uh, I, 
I know. But, well, maybe you do have to worry. But in any case, I've read articles and they say that you rank with Picasso and Stravinsky as one of the three premier minds of the 20th century. When you read and hear things like that about yourself, do you start to believe it yourself? No, I never believed it. They were they themselves, with all of their, the wonder of their imagination. I, I could look at it and envy it, maybe, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I never did it to the point where I, I sought them, did not seek myself. I don't want to appear to be having brought myself up to be, oh, wonderful and perfect and beautiful and the stardust and so on. I don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't court that mm-hmm. if I can avoid it. Do you consider yourself a dancer or a choreographer or both? I originally knew myself as a a dancer. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the word choreography at all. And uh, I was concerned with dancing and with the beauty of dancing and the wonder it can reveal more than anything in the world. I read that in past years you were actually quite tough sometimes with the dancers. And I'm wondering, are you still tough? Yes, I don't believe in mediocrity. I'm just wondering, how come so many people like turn 50 and give up on life and you've kept going? What what was different for you? How did you keep going? I kept going because I wanted to and because that was the fullness of life for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did it for no reason of being a woman's liberal or this or that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was vain. Mm-hmm. I am vain. I continue to be vain and to fix my hair as I think it should be and uh, make up. And uh, that's my privilege. I'm going to pause really fast, see if we want to have any reactions to this because really cracking me up. Yeah. I mean, I love, of course, like I don't believe in mediocrity. Amazing. And I am vain and I continue to be vain. <laughs> That's so good. I mean, that's I think that's every every dancer. <laughs> I just like too that she's just like, well, I'm just gonna tell you, like, it, you know, you can tell that she just doesn't, she doesn't mind. She's gonna be herself. And did we find out that this was one? I think we meant to say this before that this was maybe one of her last interviews that we. Is that correct? Yes, she she died less than two years later, and right. um. And then she was she was on the road for quite a bit, so she may have been interviewed in other cities, but this is certainly near the end. Yeah. Okay. We'll start back up. One thing I read is that you're five foot two inches approximately. Um, five feet, three or four. Three or I'm four. Sure. Was your height ever something you thought about? Did you think it ever held you back as a dancer? Or do you think it actually had something to do with making you a success? Well, in certain ways, I think it made me uh, where I am today. I accepted my body as it was, and I, whether it was tall or little, and uh, I dressed myself, and still do, 
in consideration at that point. Mm-hmm. My clothes, fancy I'm wearing now, worn, it was made by Holson. All of my cheap clothes are made by Holson. I have all of my evening clothes, which are In the past, you used to tell people, well, you were 30 when you were 40. You used to say you were younger than you were, and now you're very honest about your age. Why did you change that? The public changed it for me. Or else you'd still be doing it. And they knew that I I was not quite as, as young as I Oh, I know that Gregory Peck's daughter is, is reading the text for American Document. Do you remember anything about working with her father? Do you remember anything about how he I was? Do. I remember him from the time he was 19 years old. What was he like? A gangling, wonderful, eager boy. I want to pause here for a moment because Martha is about to tell me about her friendship with Helen Keller. But it's difficult to hear what she's saying. So, Sally, I got you the transcript. Could you read this little bit first, and then we'll listen to Martha saying the same thing? Yes. I remember very much Helen Keller and the wonder of her life. She would come to the studio because she felt she could feel the dance. She didn't feel the dance. She felt the vibration in her feet. And one time she said to me, Martha, I don't understand what jumping is. So I put Merce Cunningham at the bar. And he jumped, and she laughed and said, oh, how wonderful, how like the mind. I'd go to a concert with her, an opera, and she'd put her hand on the seat in front of her so she could feel the vibration. She didn't hear the sound or any part of it. She was deaf and blind, but she got something from her hands on the seat in front of her, which was a kinship with the vibration. Wow. Now let's hear Martha say those same words. I remember very much Helen Keller and the wonder of her life. You met her? Of course. She was come to studio and because she felt she could feel the dance. She didn't feel the dance. She felt the uh, vibration in her feet. And one time she said to me, Martha, I don't understand what jumping means. So I put Marsh Cunningham at the bar and he jumped. Mm-hmm. In first position, and she laughed and said, "Oh, how wonderful! All like the mind." Mm. I go to concert with her, opera. She put her hands on the seat in front of her, so she could feel the vibration. She mm. didn't. She didn't hear the song or any part of it. She was deaf and blind, mm-hmm. but she got something from her hands on the seat in front of her, which was a kinship with the vibration. Mm. I wonder um, what made you ask about Helen Keller. I'm just curious, because that part I didn't quite get when I initially listened. She she actually um, mentioned Helen Keller. Mm. And and that's why, that's why. And so I said, you knew Helen Keller, right? Right. <laughs> uh, so I, it just seemed so unlikely, considering that Martha works in a worked in a visual mm-hmm. uh, area, and but there was something that the two of them really shared. Mm, so beautiful. Mm. All right. 
Going back to the subject of the book you're writing about your life, did you go to Mrs. Onassis about the idea for the book, or did she come to you and say, why don't you do oh, a book? Oh, she came to me. Do you talk on the phone with her often about the book? Very often. Mm -hmm. She called me just yesterday, asked me how things were going. Is she reading it and giving suggestions and then giving it back to you? Is that how it works? If she reads everything and in time, she would give it back to me. She's very forthright, and uh, I like that. I'm curious if, over the years, people have written things about you that were wrong, and this is a chance to get things right. Is there anything that people wrote about you that was wrong? Or? Not that I'm going to correct. I cannot know what people have written about me. Some people have written terrific things mm -hmm. about me, and uh, one... Critics said that I was a goddess who belched. <laughs> Here's another story I want to set up. In 1936, the German government invited Martha to dance at the Berlin Olympics. And of course, she knew that Hitler was already persecuting Jews and keeping them out of the Olympics. So she turned them down. But the Germans wouldn't believe it. <laughs> they sent someone to New York to convince her. And here's what happened. Uh, they asked me why. And I said, I do not approve of your policy. And I will continue not to believe in your policy. The, the Germans actually came to your apartment? They uh, uh, wrote to me and to, uh, uh, well, they sent a woman to see me. Wow. And uh, she asked me why I could, would not. Uh, if I told them exactly everything, they, they would... Uh, just believe it anyway. So you just had to say no. Yeah, you say no. There's another great story coming up that's a little difficult to hear. It's about Martha rejecting segregation on a visit to the South. Before we hear Martha tell the story, Sally, could you read it for us? When I was in the South at Spelman College, a student of mine was in the college, and I had lunch with them with the girls. Then I said, I'll see you tonight, and they said, no, we can't go tonight. Then I realized I was held by that thing. So I spoke to the impresario, who was a local person, and I said, I hear you're sold out tonight. And he said, yes, isn't it wonderful? And I said, yes, I hear it's the first time you've ever been sold out. And he said, yes. And I said, there will be no show tonight unless Spelman College comes in. I said, I don't believe in segregation. I want 20 seats. Well, I got them. <laughs> I love that. Now let's hear Martha. When I was in the South uh, at Spillmore College, a student of mine was in the college, and uh, I had lunch with them, with the girls. Then uh, I said, I'll see you tonight. And they said, no, we can't go tonight. And I suddenly realized that we were in the hands of a very... What can I say? Racist, I guess. <laughs> or is it? In the sense of I was held by that thing. Mm -hmm. So when I spoke to the impresario, who uh, was a local person, mm -hmm. and uh, I said, I hear you're sold out tonight. He said, yes, this is wonderful. And I said, yes, I hear it's the first time you've ever been sold out. He said, yes. There will be no show tonight. Let's film the college comes in. I said, uh, I don't believe in uh, 
segregation. <laughs> I want 20 seats. Well, I got them. <laughs> I'm going to pause here. Do we want to kind of chat on that? Yeah, I mean, there's like already it's, um, you know, between the story about the, the Olympics and this, it's, it's clear that Martha was, you know, politically driven in a way too was was ahead of her time and was not was going to use her art to make a point in certain directions and and not everyone was behaving in the same way <laughs> right yeah she, she really had uh, a generosity and kindness and love of humanity that that she isn't always credited for because I know she had another side where she was very strict <laughs> and, <laughs> and very uh she you know I she even when I was there she she said to Barishnikov, will you get out of the way you know like whoa <laughs> um but I think that she she loved people and um one of the things that I was told that even shows that is that when the dancers needed anything, she helped them find apartments. She lent them clothes. Uh, when her own sister, her 89 year old sister was uh, dying, she, uh, she spent her money to take care of her sister. Um, and she had this kindness and love of humanity that I think uh, comes out in those stories. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely capture that for sure. Okay. A lot of times, especially in the very beginning, people didn't understand what you were doing at all. Reviewers would say, we don't understand this. What is this? It's ugly. Did that upset you or did you just ignore them? No, I did not ignore it. I realized I had a reason for it. I realized that I had to do it in spite of that. Whether they liked me or did not like me, they consider me... Uh, as different. I did the thing I wanted to do in the way I wanted to do it to hell with high water. There's one more story that I loved about a skeptical man in the audience that Martha was able to win over. Sally, could you read this one before Martha tells the story? A man in Holland, I remember, came backstage. He was standing in my door and he didn't say anything. And I said, did you want to say something? He said, yes, I wanted you to know that I didn't like your dancing at all. And I said, that is your privilege. You must like another kind of dance. <laughs> and the next night, he was back there, and I said, oh, my friend, here you are again. And he named a dance. And I said, well, you don't need to worry about your feeling of the dance. That's the most difficult one we do. And I congratulate you. A man in Holland, I remember, came backstage was standing at my door, and uh, he didn't say anything. And I said, did you want to say anything? He said, yes. Uh, I wanted to know why I didn't like the dancing at all. And I said, that is your privilege. You must like another kind of dance. <laughs> and the next night, he was back there. And I said, oh, my friend, here you are again. And he named a dance. And... Uh, I said, well, you don't need to worry about your feeling of the dance. That's the most difficult one we do, and I congratulate you. <laughs> Was there ever a point where you were just so down you thought, I'm going to give up? I don't 
think that because there was nothing else to do. You, you either did or you died, and I didn't have any intention of dying at that moment. <laughs> You've been working so long at this. Do you ever reach a point where you don't have to worry about money anymore? The reality is I have no money at all, and that I'm constantly in need of money. Why? Well, for the reason of the company, mm -hmm. for the reason I exist the way I do in the company. I guess people would think that corporations would just give you huge sums of money and oh. you'd be all set. Oh, 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 how wonderful that would be. How <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Because then I could really concentrate on what I'm doing. But as it is, I uh, have to do other things. I'm curious to know, are you happy? Are you happy with your life? Yes. I uh, wouldn't have lived the life I have lived mm -hmm. unless I was, to a certain degree, happy in it. I found great happiness in my work and in everything that I did. And uh, had great feeling of honor for it. And uh, I didn't want to be anything else. I wish I could dance now. Mm -hmm. I wish I could be uh, that active in my body. I'm not. So I find another way, which mm -hmm. is the beauty of the company and the beauty of their accomplishment. The fact that they too are obsessed with that extreme desire to do that thing which is so big with them. I love that. That last bit was so poignant, just so beautiful. How incredible that you captured that. Like, I mean, of course, when someone's 95, you don't expect, you don't you take for granted that they'll be around much longer, but it just that you like to have that moment of reflection looking back on her whole life right shortly before it was over i think that's so incredible that you captured that and that i mean and that you saved this moment now we all we all get to share that thank you for listening Beautiful. and um you know she there was one other quote from her that was my favorite and i had to cut it because it, it was inaudible and it was mm -hmm. no use having sally read it because it, you had to hear martha say it but i'll mm -hmm. just tell you what she said it was along the same lines but she said i would love to dance very much but life takes its toll and you can't do that but i still look with extreme envy when the dancers are beautiful and i can't see why that's wrong oh oh, oh wow so <laughs> <Make> cry <laughs> a little <laughs> yeah oh wow oh my yeah. gosh really beautiful and i I love the questions that you asked too, because I feel like they would be ones that Michael and I would want to ask in some of the instances. <laughs> like they were just, it was really beautiful. Cause I do think sometimes when dancers are interviewed, they're not by people who aren't dancers. They don't necessarily know what questions to ask, but I loved what you had to say. And I think even talking about the money thing that like made me think what it would be like now, like I would hope that wouldn't be the case now for her if, you know, she was as you know, currently working in 2023. I still don't quite understand it because Doris Duke was a supporter. I mean, there were people who were supporters who could just say, I'll pay for the company for the rest of 
for all time. Right. Um, Madonna, you know, took classes there. And um, I know she was a supporter. And it's interesting. Yeah, that Mm. that Madonna, I think maybe Madonna's support came a little later. There was something in the book I noticed where Madonna said, you're not going to have to worry anymore or something. Mm. So maybe, maybe Madonna gave a donation. But I would think what would seem like a small amount to Madonna could keep this company going for a little while. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, well, artists famously not good with money. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's, I mean, it's possible that she wasn't good with money. <laughs> you know, someone could give you a few million dollars, and if you're not used to having money, you just burn in a hole in your pocket. <laughs> just spend it all in one place. We'll do great new production, and we won't think about the next season. <laughs> okay, so I, now we got to hear the stories of how you did that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well. That's an episode <laughs> or another time. I gave you an idea for another episode. <laughs> sure. yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing this with us and allowing us to play this on the podcast. We know our listeners are just going to love it so much. And we really hope that um, people click over and check out your podcast. You have great um, interviews and content just like this for lots of people across the pop culture world. I, I just want to mention that I, I, for the rest of this month, I've got a little uh, lottery on my site where um, I, I'm i trying to distribute some of my treasures. And so I have the uh, program for American Document from the gala. And I have received a couple of responses, but I'm going to have a little lottery. If you go to our website, um, it, the, the podcast is I Couldn't Throw It Out. And the website is throwitoutpodcast.com. Um, if you are interested in being in the lottery to receive the program for American Document in 1989 with Barishnikov dancing, um, just go there, click the contact thing, write me a message, and then you'll be in the lottery to see who who gets it. And that's the way I can avoid throwing it out. Yes. <laughs> well, that's such a cool artifact. And that's so generous of you to be sharing it with other dance lovers in the world. Yeah. <laughs> And and also just a reminder that um, my next episode is about Tupac Shakur, and there are episodes with Joni Mitchell um, and Jennifer Beals and Kiefer Sutherland and other people that I interviewed, and I hope people will come and listen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to check out the Tupac episode. I mean, yeah. how timely right now. I mean, yes. it's back in the news. So. Right. Yes. Right. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us, Michael. You. We really appreciate your time. Okay, you I appreciate yours. Thank you. Conversations on Dance is part of the ACAST Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com. Tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. 
Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.